0: This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything about assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey,
1: and welcome to another episode of AT Banter.
2: Banter, banter. <laughs> Mine was better the first take. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, he can he can splice it in.
1: <laughs> uh, hey, my name is Rob Mano, and joining me today, look who it is! It's Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hello again. Uh, and
3: Mr. Steve Barkley. Just call me Scut Worker what
2: (laughs) scut worker
3: Uh, i've been been doing a physical inventory count today what is a scut worker i've never you know somebody who
1: does scut work i've never heard the worms the term scut work before really is it really s-c-u-t is that an acronym yeah as far as i know shitty no wait what is (laughs) i've never heard that term before am i just out of it now we gotta look it up
2: Today's episode uh, yeah, see, brought it, to you it, by it, the word uh, "scut." <laughs> <laughs>
3: it it uh, scut work actually has a Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition. Is it really? Wow! It does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I hate, I hate uh, it. It means routine, r- routine, and often menial labor. Huh?
1: Really? See, I hate it when this happens. Yeah. I hate it when I find out that I've lived my entire life not knowing about something. Like, this is completely new to me.
2: I don't think your life is any more complete now that you know about the word scut.
1: Uh, well, you know.
3: Oh, I, to... I tend to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Do so you yourself... feel fulfilled? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but it feels a lot like being... You even... can die in peace now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, hey Ryan.
2: Yes, Rob.
1: Uh, what are we doing today?
2: Today we are speaking with the executive director from the Developmental Disabilities Association of Vancouver Richmond, Alana Hendren, all about what they do over there.
1: It's a pretty big nonprofit.
2: Well, and this, you know, it's a topic we haven't really touched on in our whole time doing this podcast, and so it was time to reach out to somebody and just get more information there's a lot of things you know even though we've been in the disability field for you know 20 30 years yeah there's just still a lot of things we don't know yeah and so it's educational for me as well when we get guests on here that i know nothing about
1: look at this we're learning we're counting it's like it's like an episode of sesame street (laughs) (laughs) Mm, cookie (laughs) So, you know, hey, before we get too far down and uh, start the show, we do have a bit, a little bit of an update from last week's show. Uh, and we're actually going to bring on Karen McKay, who joined us last week uh, from SELA, uh, because we have a little bit of an update.
0: Hello. Good
2: Hello. afternoon. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you.
2: I, I guess keep... it is.
1: Well, listen, yeah. Thanks for thanks for stopping by and giving us a little bit of an update. Uh, you know, we saw the news yesterday, and so we wanted to sort of get get a little bit of, of your reaction to it because, um, and, you know, as with a lot of these things, um, a lot of the the releases are are phrased in a way where it's just like this is good news question mark question mark so yeah um (laughs) so we wanted to sort of get your reaction before we just sort of went off on on our own interpretation so maybe if you could just sort of um encapsulate what the what the news is at first and, and then we'll go from there
0: okay um so on let me just get my day straight on tuesday uh Laurie Davidson, who's our executive director, and Kevin Millsips, who is the uh, executive director at BC Co-ops, which oversees NELS, met with uh, Minister Qualtro and some of her staff for about a half an hour meeting. Uh, and in that meeting, they had a really fruitful discussion. Uh, Minister Qual- Qualtro was wanting to make sure that, um, that we understood that she's committed to Uh, ensuring equitable access for reading materials. And from that meeting came the announcement which was sent out uh, shortly after And it basically um, outlined that for the coming budget year, so that would be 2021-2022, which begins April 1st, uh, there would be no cuts to funding for CELA or NELS. So that $1 million cut that we were anticipating uh, has been, we have a reprieve. It's been perhaps pushed off. We don't know the answer to that question yet. So uh, for this year, we're not anticipating any changes to our services. But as part of our conversation with Minister Cultural, we also talked about the need for a long-term strategy for funding and also for ensuring that the publishing industry and other stakeholders have a place at the table. We need to ensure that they can, um, that they can be heard. So we have heard from a number of the publishing groups over the last week or so as we've been doing this work. Uh, and they, And we really support the idea of born accessible books. So that's more books being made accessible the source so that publishers are aware that they need to be thinking about accessibility and doing their best to support accessible materials right from the get-go but we also heard from them that um, that the industry is not in a place to take on sole responsibility for uh producing all of the accessible formats that that really need to be produced in order to have an equitable reading landscape and so we had a conversation with minister culture with with regards to that and we're hoping that um, going forward in the in the short term all of the folks that are invested in this issue will be able to come to the table and have some conversations um, acknowledge the realities of you know COVID and potentially post COVID knock on wood um, but also just the idea that the you know that we need to work together and that there's a place for organizations like CELA and NELS in this work on an ongoing basis there's definitely need for the federal government to be at the table so that we ensure equitable standards across the, the country. Um, and that the publishers have a role to play too, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's perhaps not, um, realistic to expect them to pick up the entire ball and carry it all the way down the field to use a sports metaphor that I'm not, I don't play football, so I don't know much about to. <laughs> yeah. um, that
2: was <laughs> perfect.
0: Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, so I don't know that I have a, a whole lot more to, to share on that. Um, Minister Qualtro's release was, a, um, it definitely had some spin to it. Um, so she announced a million dollars in new funding and we've had some calls and some, um, some feedback from some of our partners in advocacy and some of our users who've, who've wondered if we actually got a raise. And unfortunately that's not true. Um, right. We just, they've just pushed the, the funding cuts um off for a year we don't have assurances from the federal government that we won't be looking at at the same funding cuts a year from now so um, what we don't want to do is have to um, go through this process again and light everybody's hair on fire. Um, I don't think that I don't think that that was the intention of the government. And, um, you know, we, we certainly are grateful for the reprieve and, and grateful for the conversation that we had with Minister Qualtro. Um, but we also recognize, as does she, that there needs to be a longer term strategy available. Um, and as I said before, it needs to include all of the stakeholders. So that's what we're hoping for um, her release did not include that, but we did get her assurances in our meeting uh, that that would be something that we would be, um, would be able to look forward to. And so we're, we're hoping to um, to see that movement sooner rather than later.
1: Now the, the, the release also mentioned uh, $10 million towards, I guess, I, I, and I'm a little fuzzy on exactly what, what the, what the, the $10 million is for, but It mentioned $10 million going towards trying to develop uh, a long-term strategy, is that correct?
0: So this is where it gets a little convoluted. So the $10 million is actually the money that they had um, had announced in the fall economic statement as our budget cuts. So the initially this year we were to have had like last year, we had $4 million split between SILA and NELS uh, and then this coming budget year, we were to have 3 million and then 2 million and then 1 million. So that represents the $10 million pot that they're talking about. So even though they say they're investing this $10 million, it's not new money. And it's not, right. um, and, and and doesn't address the cuts. It actually it, it actually includes the cuts in that right. figure, so um, so that's why we want to make sure that we're having this conversation about long-term sustainable funding because the the suggestion or the concern is um, that we could be back here in a year having to have these conversations. The really great news is that this advocacy campaign, thanks to guys like you, thanks to our partners, thanks to our users, it really raised the level of conversation around accessible uh, materials production. You know, there were mentions in the Senate yesterday, there's been mentions on the floor in the House of Commons. Um, We've had lots of media picking up the story who, you know, mainstream media who are not always aware of these issues. so I've been having lots of great conversations with reporters about what accessible publishing actually means and who it serves. Um, and so there's a there's a level of awareness there that um, I think will help us going forward in terms of creating the conversations that we need to create about really making sure that we have um, a fully inclusive and fully equitable reading landscape right. in the future. And you know the government is aware of all of the advocacy that's been done. We really think it's through the work of of folks like you and and our our users that pushed quite hard with their local MPs and with Minister Qualtro to make sure that that she understood and that the government understood the value of these services and the importance of these services for all Canadians and all folks with print disabilities. Like we know that's one in 10 people. And so, um, you know, that's a, a significant constituency for um, for MPs, they, they need to be paying attention to this issue and they are now so we're quite grateful for that as well. So in terms
1: of, of a strategy now, now that the talks are open, um, you know, what can people best do like is are you just sort of telling people just to, to keep an eye on things and get ready to push again or what should people be doing.
0: Well, um, I'm actually heading into a strategy meeting in about 20 minutes to just discuss exactly that. Um, So there are some some things being organized. We know that Braille Literacy Canada is holding an event tomorrow night, Thursday night, um, to to give people a place to sort of voice their concerns, get their questions answered, and Sila and Nels will both be there. Um, We are looking at holding some similar kinds of conversations with our constituents, with our libraries, with our users um, going forward, and that'll be something that we'll be talking about as well. So we, you know, uh, we did have a conversation about do we lay down arms or do we sort of continue with the the considerate and thoughtful conversations that we need to be having with the government. So we don't want this to be um, antagonistic by any means because we, you know, we did accomplish our primary goal, which was to reserve the funding, preserve the funding for this year. Um, but, But I do think it's important to, to stay on the radar, especially as we are striving to get everybody to the table to have these conversations. Um, and, you know, it, it's challenging for the government as well, because because um, uh, there's not a really a good place for SELA to land in terms of funding model. We're kind of a unique organization, as is NELS. And and so um, those conversations need to be had as well. Where's the best place to ensure that the needs of users with print disabilities get the attention and the services that they need through the government and through SELA and NELS. Um, and so that will be part of the conversation as well. So from the SELA perspective, our commitment is to keep people up to date as we have these conversations. So we're going to leave our advocacy page up Okay. will be, um, as there's things to announce or update folks on, we'll be putting that information out on the blog. We might reach out to media partners like you just to say, hey, we've got a bit of an update. We can let you know what's happening. Uh, because what we don't want is for accessible publishing and the need for those books to recede to the point that, you know, we're not making progress or that, um, that, that folks who make these decisions aren't aware of the importance of them and don't recognize the importance of them. And I'm not by any, in any means suggesting that, Minister Qualtor doesn't understand that, clearly she does, and she's been an advocate for um, folks with disabilities for a long time. Um, but, you know, it, it would be a disservice for, I think, for Sela and Nels and our, um, our partners in the publishing industry um, to miss this opportunity to really make some headway for longer term strategies.
1: Right. Well, listen, anytime uh, you want to come on, if you have any updates, we're more than happy to have you. I, I have many more questions, but I know <laughs> that you have to run uh, and I, we don't want to keep you. But we really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us a little bit of an update. And uh, yeah, if, if uh, we need to start pushing again, we're certainly happy to help with that.
0: Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and for you your work in reaching out to your listeners. Um, and do stay tuned on our blog and our social media. Uh, and I will be in touch with you guys if we, if and when we have some more good news to announce.
1: Wonderful. That's great. Okay, Karen. Well, Thanks, guys. Uh, good luck with the meeting and uh, we will talk to you again soon.
0: Thanks so much. I really appreciate your interest in the story.
2: Awesome. Great. Thanks Take for care. your
1: time.
0: Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
3: Hi everyone, this is Steve from Canadian Assistive Technologies, and this is a shameless plug. We've been working hard to find less expensive Braille products so we can make Braille available for more people. We can now say that we have Canada's most comprehensive lineup of inexpensive Braille solutions, including the 20-cell BrailleMe from InnoVision, the soon-to-be-released 40-cell Orbit Braille display from Orbit Research, as well as the world's least expensive multi-line Braille reader, the Canute from Bristol Braille. You can have a look at them all on our website at www.canastech.com.
2: Joining us now is Alana Hendren. So Alana, thank you so much for joining us today. I am Ryan Fleury and joining us in the room is Steve Barclay. Hello. And Rob Minow. Uh Hello there. Gentlemen,
4: thank you for inviting me.
2: Well, we're glad to have you, you know, every once in a while, we like to try to bring awareness to a local disability organization who's doing really good work. And so, you know, I think I had my lines a little bit confused because I thought you were developmental disabilities, B.C., but that doesn't matter because you're still developmental disabilities in B.C., (laughs) you're just local.
4: (laughs) That's right.
2: So that's even better. We
4: deliver services.
2: Exactly.
3: You're where the rubber meets the road.
4: Exactly.
2: (laughs) Excellent. So, yes, thank you so much for taking some time to join us.
4: No problem. Like I say, it's my pleasure to be here and meet you guys.
1: Well, hey, you know, that's a good segue uh, into just uh, maybe giving us a little bit of an overview of what the organization does do.
4: Okay. Um, The Developmental Disabilities Association was actually created in 1952. Uh, It was created by a small group of families who didn't want to put their adult um, or their children um, into institutions. So that was the only place that kids could be educated in those days. So what they did is they uh, rented church basements, literally, and the parents took turns teaching the kids. Uh, One of the parents had a big um, station wagon. And so she'd pick all these little kids up in the morning in the station wagon. They'd go to school. One of the families, mostly moms, would teach a course, and then they'd all go back home. A number of years after doing that, they managed to secure some funding to get a teacher. And then they secured more funding, um, mostly through fundraising and from government grants to build the Oak Ridge School, which in Vancouver was the special needs school. Uh, from literally primary all the way to uh, high school grades. And those were the first group of people who actually got educated uh, in the community instead of in the institution. Then over time, schools uh, began accepting kids with developmental and other disabilities in their neighborhood schools. And so the association donated the Oak Ridge School to the Vancouver City School Board and then the parents who were involved of course wanted more adult programming so they started sheltered workshops and they started residential group homes which were quite big at the beginning and over time uh, we've evolved so that now we run uh, infant development programs so that if somebody is in the hospital uh Let's say a couple has just had their first baby and the baby has a developmental or other disability, then our workers are there to assist them and also to help them at home. Uh, then we have inclusive preschool and childcare services. And we have adult services like our drop in. We've got StarWorks, which is a social enterprise that we operate. We have uh, all sorts of day programs uh, for every level of. Um, of intellectual capacity. And we have um, independent living, home share, semi-independent living, group homes. So the full range of services for people with developmental disabilities from birth to palliative care. When people get elderly and ill, our staff are very good at turning the home into a palliative care facility. you know, we like people to be at home with the people they love rather than in a cold hospital at the end of their lives. So um, yeah, we do the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like, you know, right from, you know, kindergarten to old age, you guys are, are involved in the lives of many of these people.
4: Yes. Well, from birth, actually, our infant development program uh, will go out there at birth, and then they work with primarily moms, to show them how they can manipulate the child physically so that it can speed up physical development and sort of the connection between the brain and the body. Uh, They also work with children who have fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, narcotic addiction syndrome. We have a partnership with Women's Hospital right now. Um, They have a fantastic program for women who use substances. And so in the past, if you had been branded an addict What would happen is that the ministry would come and take your baby away from you at birth Uh, what they decided to do is try to keep women together with their infants and have both of them detox together in the hospital And so what we do is we work in and as the hospital is caring for the mom and helping her get her life on track. We work with the moms and the babies to show them how they can maximize the potential of their infants and we help them build that infant bond and then as they leave the hospital our workers go with them into the Community to make sure that you know, everything's stable at home and the kids are are all good. Uh, so it's very exciting, uh, particularly the early development stuff, because we know that for every $7 a society spends on infant development, um, or sorry, for every dollar that a society spends on infant development, you save $7 down the road in future costs. And you have a a child that uh, can go into school and not even be labeled with special needs in some cases.
1: so that's a lot to bite off. Um, how big is the organization?
4: We have almost five hundred employees, and we ha- serve about a thousand people a year.
1: so and and you know with it's such a such a storied organization too, going back so far. I'm assuming that that you you guys have have had to pivot a lot over the years as um, different different funding has become available, or even different um, you know federal strategies on how to how to handle developmental disabilities has sort of come to pass.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, a lot of agencies chase money, um, which. I, I call it chasing money, the federal or the provincial government will come up with a new idea and then they'll fund a certain program they didn't fund anymore. And so all of a sudden that's the way the whole sector goes. And you know that that goes for us as well. Um, But because we've been an advocacy association as well a lot of the changes that governments have made over the years have been progressive, and they were supported by the association. So for example, uh, we used to have segregated child cares because uh, families who had kids with. with developmental or intellectual or cognitive disabilities, some of whom also had mental health disorders or physical disabilities, they had nowhere to send their kids. So we opened up segregated child cares. But then over time, integration, took over and so now all of our child cares are integrated which means that 25 percent of the kids might have disabilities but the other 75 percent are all just typical kids and they get great child care service because it's an enhanced uh, learning environment uh, the same thing with employment um, employment employing people with developmental disabilities in the community didn't really come around until the 1980s. And it was sort of just piloted. Whereas now, uh, the federal government, provincial government are really pushing employment for everyone. Uh, So we have focused on employment very much over the last 20 years. Um, So yeah, you're absolutely right. We've had to grow and evolve uh, with society and societal perceptions and societal goals.
1: And so, you know, we've we've talked here on the podcast before about sort of the the move to further inclusion lately. Um, has that been you, the, the organization's experience too? Like, are we kind of in a little bit of a, a golden age, say, for inclusion right now?
4: I hope so. Um, a lot of debate has been happening about what inclusion even means. So generally, this debate happens around the school system to say, well, you know, These kids are integrated, but they're not included. And then now the discussion is about, well, they can be included, but do they really belong? So you can get caught up in a lot of these um, words. What we want is a community where everyone belongs, not just people with developmental disabilities, but everybody should be included in the communities where we live and work and play. And that's what our association stands for. I think governments have really come along. The provincial governments just introduced some accessibility legislation. The city of Vancouver has a great uh, accessibility uh, committee that's going to be doing some public consultations on how we can make our communities more accessible for everyone. And I think that we're on the right track because the more all of us participate, uh, the more diverse and the more exciting of a society that we're going to have.
1: It's also interesting, ha- being an organization that that has been around for so long, because you can you can sort of point to different strategies and and recognize the successes and the failures in them. Like, can you like are you sort of able to point to something like integration? And and say, look, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, a, a child who's who's integrated and who is brought up in in a in a positive atmosphere throughout their their education, and then, you know, sort of streamlined into, um, inc- you know, an inclusive job, you know, as as part of an exclusive strategy. Or like, are you sort of able to point to that and go, this is a, a real, this is a success story, and this is how the system should be built?
4: well you know i'm old enough that i was around when we closed institutions so a lot of people these days don't even know that people lived in institutions so in the past so i'm talking about you know the 1930s 40s 50s 60s 70s if you had a child with a disability very often the doctor would tell you to put this child in an institution and forget that you ever had them people with developmental disabilities when when viewed through the eugenics lens, and eugenics was a theory that said that, you know, essentially, all people who were deficient in some way should be locked away so that the rest of us can essentially live our lives. Uh, When they were seen that way, they were essentially almost human refuse. I mean, being locked in institutions that were understaffed, uh, undervalued, the staff there were undervalued. Um, when the institutions were at their peak, over 6,000 people with developmental disabilities were locked away for life, without any due process or without break- breaking the law. And very often, babies would just be dropped at the institution doorways because the parents didn't understand how to look after them, and because there were no resources in the community. So I had the wonderful experience of working on the closure of the institutions and essentially taking people who lived, who had been locked up for so long. And I'm talking, you know, very, very uh, scarce uh, staff on wards of 30 to 60 people. And so when we moved everybody out, out of the institution and welcomed them into homes in the community, there was an immediate effect there you know immediately people started behaving like they belonged in the community um at first a lot of people wouldn't be able to open a door they'd stand at the door and wait for somebody to open it because they never opened a door in their whole life they needed a nurse to open a door with a key and let them in or out Uh, So that was the real big game changer, is once we close the institution, then all people with developmental disabilities were going to be supported in their community. And unlike mental health, uh, which is a bit of a different story, uh, the governments did invest quite a bit of money in developing the community to include people with uh, cognitive uh, disabilities. In the terms of when they closed Riverview and the psychiatric facilities, the problem was is that they closed the institutions, but they didn't invest in community mental health. And so then you have a lot of people that are living on the street or otherwise in need of care uh, who, who don't get it. So I think that the system right now for people with developmental disabilities is good. I think it's quite well resourced. I worry about uh, escalating demand in the future because we also experience this huge uptick in people with autism uh, that started about 20 to 15 years ago. And uh, that's going to increase the demand on a service delivery system that is barely meeting demand right now and we did prove like i have to say in the beginning when we first started community living we opened up a few group homes around the province Uh, a lot of people said this is not possible you can't possibly move these people into the community and expect them to adapt and fit in and so on so we were always proving that this was a good concept and a better way for people to live And now, of course, we're proving that not only can people uh, go to inclusive child cares, they can go to inclusive schools, they can go to inclusive uh, work programs and learn how to become employed, uh, which is what all of us want for our kids. So I think it's been huge. And inclusive education was huge as well. When kids started going to school with typical kids, then they started acting like typical kids. Uh, So everybody's efforts, and it's a lot of efforts over the last decades, I think are really paying off today. And I hope they just only get better. How important
1: is educating the public to the organization?
4: Educating the public is very important, but most of, a lot of the education of the public has really happened by way of the people that we support living in the community working in the community and showing everybody what's possible so i think they're probably the best educators uh all we're really asking for is a chance um this is a a, a group of folks who through no fault of their own uh, are born with barriers uh to their future and I think that we live in a wonderful society here um, to have so many people who are very welcoming and where we don't have a lot of horrible stigma uh, as they do in many other uh, countries. So we are, I think, probably one of the best areas in the world to live in if you have a developmental disability.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly in the, in the last 10 years or so, you know, the football has definitely been driven forward in terms of being able to have conversations about, you know, everything from, say, mental health to, um, you know, developmental disabilities, you know, you hear more and more conversations about things like autism and all the gradients of, of the condition. Um, so, so I, I I agree with you completely. I think that we we really are headed to a to a much better space than we were even twenty years ago.
4: Yes, yes. Uh, of course, it all depends on on government commitment, and that's probably the weakness of our system. Is that when you look all over the world and you look at services for people who are disadvantaged in any way. Uh, first of all, the country or the province has to have enough money uh, to be able to dedicate it to support of the more vulnerable. Uh, and it has to have the political will. And we are very fortunate that we have a political will uh, in British Columbia that we, we do uh, look at supporting disadvantaged people, particularly people with developmental disabilities. I think we could do a lot better. Uh, with a number of other groups out there who really need our support right now.
1: Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. You know, in terms of some of the challenges that the organization might face, I'm sure that you're you're no different from many other organizations that are like yours in in the sense of funding is is got to be a, a really a really big obstacle to overcome because we we don't always have the greatest funding for, for these types of programs. Um, can you speak a little bit to that?
4: Well, I can speak uh, from the point of view of the Developmental Disabilities Organization. Uh, we had a business, I'm not sure if you remember it, you might have seen our trucks running around the community uh, picking up cl- uh, used clothing for Value Village. We, we picked up the used clothing and then we sold it to Value Village. So that provided us with revenue That we could use uh, to fill in those areas where government funding was not adequate so technology is a big area that that we invested that funding. Um, And so, because we're a very business like organization uh, generally we don't have some of the funding pressures that other organizations might have uh because we have sort of assumed uh control of our own destiny in some areas having said that my big fear is not for the organization it's for individuals and families uh about 20 years ago around 2000 uh was the liberal government and what they brought in was individualized funding so instead of block funding agencies they wanted to fund individuals and then those individuals would in theory have choices about where they could go and purchase their services. We haven't totally flipped to a a free market system, primarily because there's not a lot of competition to provide services to people who have no money. Um, So we're sort of still skating around with that same concept though. So now more responsibility is placed on the family to raise their child the way they want to raise their child. And then when the child becomes an adult, if the family needs support, and I'm talking about, you know, some children grow to be adults with huge health barriers. Uh, Some kids are in wheelchairs and will be for life. Others need to lay prone sometimes uh, for a great percentage of their day. Some have huge behavior problems that provide a barrier to inclusion and sometimes to the safety of others. Now I'm just talking on the extreme ends, but if you were a parent and you had to deal with this for the rest of your life, you would need some support. So my concern for the future is will families get the kinds of individualized supports they need? Will we have enough funding to meet those needs? And will we have enough family support uh, programs and opportunities in the community to help those families go through transitions? The big transitions for families are from, you know, infancy into kindergarten and then from high school into uh, the regular world of, of work and so on. So my concern is that the number one problem for people with any kind of disability, but particularly developmental disability, is poverty, because if they are left to their own devices and don't have, uh, you know, the skills or the abilities to work, uh, then basically they're 100% reliant on the government. And, uh, you know, even even the folks who do work, Very often can only work for a day or two a week. So they need that extra funding uh, from somebody other than their families, because some of the services are very expensive and families unless they were extremely wealthy would not be able to pay for them on their own. Right. So my concern for the future is less with the organization and more with you know, what's going to happen to individuals that, with disabilities? The biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges facing the organization is being able to recruit and retain employees because, again, government funding doesn't pay for uh, really top salaries for people who uh, work with vulnerable folks.
2: In talking about services and supports, you know, I have to ask the question that we ask many of our guests. And that relates to the pandemic you know has it shown your organization holes in the systems that you know were never noticed before this this pandemic
4: yes i think all of us have probably seen holes in in just the way society is operating uh with the pandemic the The really exciting news about DDA is that we had been investing in technology uh, before the pandemic hit. So we had purchased technology, we had pushed the staff in the organization to uh, go online and put as many of our resources online. We also hired uh, somebody who's an expert in assistive technology and had already been working with some of the individuals that we support, uh, determining what kind of technology can we use that would make life easier for this person or help them get a job. And so a lot of people with with cognitive and developmental disabilities have very poor language uh, or express know, it's hard for them to express themselves. So there are so many apps out there now uh, for communication, for kids, for adults. And so we have the capacity now we have two people in our system technology department, and what they do is they research uh, a lot of the apps they buy a lot of things that are almost like toys, you know, things like heated heated blankets that people can put on, uh, weighed blankets that help some people sleep better. So sort of the lower tech, all the way up to the higher tech. So I don't know if you're familiar with some of the old methods of uh, communication assistance that our folks got, but they were these Dyna boxes that were kind of archaic and difficult to use. Well, now we've got these great communication apps. Um, So we were ready to flip online quite quickly. Uh, We didn't have to close any of our services. Uh, We had to implement uh, a lot of new policy around wearing PPE and we had to monitor our group homes. One of our group homes did get uh, infected with COVID, which was, you know, very traumatic because all the staff and all the clients got sick and it was at the very beginning. So uh, we had to rush to make up rules because the bureaucracy hadn't really dealt with it yet. <laughs> yeah. um, so we were very fortunate just because we had the technology and we had the know-how uh, to flip everything online. Uh, we did notice we have a number of of uh, people who come to us from su- for support during the day but they live with elderly parents so we could have somebody who's 60 who's living with mom and dad and they're 82 and 85 uh, so what we had to do in those cases was buy food for the family and drop it off uh, you know mom just got out of the hospital and dad just had a bad fall um, so again it's not so much DDA that concerns me it's the precarious nature of a lot of people, who a lot of you know parents who look after uh, their kids with developmental disabilities well into um, their eighties, and sometimes they aren't you know necessarily up to it. So uh, we just flipped and adapted to that and helped out as much as we could. But food delivery ended up being quite important during the first lockdown.
2: Yeah.
3: What what are the uh, uh, housing uh, opportunities like for people with developmental disabilities? Are, are there, are is there much in the way of group homes? Uh, what's the demand like on the social housing that is available?
4: Well, that is just a great question. Um, the people who we support uh, and the families who we support, unfortunately, have the same problems accessing public housing as everybody else does. So during uh, the when the liberals first came into power, a lot of social housing was privatized. Um, They stopped building social housing. Uh, We we saw homelessness start to really, you know, like you couldn't ignore it anymore. It was everywhere. Uh, and and that continues. Uh, so for people who need affordable housing, it's very difficult when all you have is about $400 a month to spend on rent, uh, to find anything for $400 a month. That's not a total slum. We've actually uh, provided service for people who were living in uh, storage lockers. We had one fellow, he, he lived in a storage locker for two years until the the company that owned the storage locker was sold and the new owners told them he had to leave. Uh, So housing is an extremely important issue. And again, DDA has a number of group homes. Uh, The government was closing group homes at the beginning and we kept our group homes open. I think we only closed one. Uh, We actually rent uh, some homes uh, on the open market, and that's where our semi-independent clients live, and then we also support people who live in their own apartments in the community, but those are typically people who also work uh, in addition to, um, you know, getting government benefits. Housing is a huge issue for every disadvantaged person in this province.
3: Indeed, I've I've been in to see the the state of some of the housing too, uh, and uh... You know, it's it's poorly maintained, run down. You know, just nasty apartments, torn up carpets, holes in walls. Um, it, I I see it as something that that's a major failing of our society right now, and something that
4: really does need to be addressed. Yes, I agree. It's a huge issue. Um, what can what can you do to help people if they're transient or without a fixed address? I knew the psychiatrist that was working on the downtown east side he's an amazing uh, psychiatrist and he went down and he would see people once a week on the downtown east side but when i talked to him about it he said it's very difficult to follow up you see somebody once and then they never show up again and you don't know where they're living so i think particularly for people with mental health disorders it's a tragedy uh, what's happened. And if you're depressed or you already have a mental health disorder and you're living in housing that's filthy or, you know, filled with a bunch of other people who also don't know what's going on or live in these degrading circumstances, you're just going to get worse. Uh, so I think that, you know, for everybody out there who, you know, can't be a millionaire and buy a house in Vancouver, we need some strategy to to provide more than tents. Right.
1: Um, can you talk a little to us a little bit about uh, StarWorks, which is uh, the social enterprise that you you mentioned earlier? I, I'm curious to hear a little bit about it and just kind of how important um, businesses like this can can really be and, and the strategy behind it.
4: Well, we had our um, our business that made money for DDA. That was our contact with Value Village. Um, and then when... When I first arrived in the late 1990s, I think it was 1997, we had a bunch of sheltered workshops, and a number of them were very rundown um, and not very conducive to sort of building a positive image. So my goal was to shut down all these sheltered workshops and replace them with either programs that would provide recreation and leisure uh, to people whose goals were less focused on employment or employment programs or drop-ins or some sort of activity which was more than sitting there filling you know envelopes with pieces of paper or packaging or these other sort of mundane tasks that, that people were doing. So as we interviewed everybody and asked them what they'd really like to do, uh, there were a number of people who had tried competitive employment, and they didn't like it. They felt it was too pressured, or they didn't uh, feel included with their coworkers, or it was too stressful. Uh, but they they needed something that was more like work. So what we decided to do was sort of form a little business within DDA and we called it Starworks. And we made it so that the staff and the clients could decide what work they were gonna, what kind of work they were gonna do and um, what they were going to, how they were gonna market themselves. So they decided to stay with the packaging theme, but we also had a contract with BC Hydro uh, for these, these tie wires. And we had a big contract with uh, Tourism BC um, stuffing the, their tourism uh, brochures and booklets into, into plastic so that they could mail them around the world. Of course, that's gone now because everything's online. Anyhow, uh, they decided they still wanted to do packaging. Uh, the staff uh, figured out how to do marketing. And the goal of Starworks is to employ people at minimum wage or better. So we don't make any money from it. Um, all of the money that is realized from the program goes back into hiring more people. So the way we work it out is that if we get a contract, we figure out, okay, we can, we can employ 10 people with this contract. Um, and the money uh, essentially goes in wages to those 10 people. Uh, And then you know sometimes we've gone up to 30 people working because we've got a number of contracts in so we can control the work you know we make sure that the work balances with the number of people who we can employ and our goal is to employ as many people as possible and what's interesting about star work is that it's not just people with developmental disabilities anymore Uh, we have a couple people who have long-term mental health disorders who now are in a positive place. They've got good treatment, uh, but they need the the shelter, the protection. They need some staff around to support them uh, in order to work. Uh, so that's great. That's what StarWorks is all about. And hopefully uh, people will move on from StarWorks and get a job in the comu- in the community. But for some people, a job in the community is just a little too much pressure.
2: How receptive have you found employers to be?
4: Well, they, um, what we do is we approach companies and we get them to give us work that we can do, uh, at our Starworks job site. Okay. So those, um, you know, we, we got involved in networks of, uh, socially responsible, um, suppliers, stuff like that. So it's gone, it's gone really well in terms of our employment program. Uh, we run jobs West, which is a, uh, All it does is get people jobs, and it has expanded quite a bit over the years because we also uh, subcontract uh, with WorkBC in a number of areas all the way up to Coquitlam, actually, uh, to get people jobs. And we have found employers in Vancouver uh, to be very receptive. Now, one of the reasons is economic. Our guys will work for minimum wage, uh, whereas many people in Vancouver don't work for minimum wage. So we can provide very stable employees that will stay for a long time, even if they're just making minimum wage. And some of our folks have gone on. uh, We had one guy who worked at the Hotel Vancouver for thirty five years. because he'd been placed a long time ago. Uh, And we've had other people work at McDonald's for 20 years and places like that. So a big selling point we have is that we can provide competent workers who will stick around, uh, even at minimum wage rates.
2: And I think that's something we've seen in cross-disability fields. You know, I'm totally blind myself and grateful to have a job. And so, you know, people who face an impairment of some sort have to fight so much harder prove themselves so much more that they're capable of doing the job and then when they get the job chances are they're going to be a lot more reliable stable stay longer loyal um you know and and what you just said kind of proves that out
4: yes yes and totally about the loyalty. I mean, we have some folks that are such company people, it's unbelievable because they find a sense of family, Um, you know, like many of us do uh, in the work that we choose. So, you know, I'm all for it. I think people with disabilities are great workers uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and And that's one of them is when they find a job that they really like they stay and they're very proud and show up for work early leave late if that's necessary Uh, we're seeing a lot more people working retail and that's really exciting too because of course in order to work retail you have to have super good personal hygiene yourself Um, and we've also found a lot of people in the retail community a lot of the retail workers are very supportive uh, and happy to help out so it's I think it's just fantastic. Uh, and I hope that our unemployment situation stays relatively low so we can keep this going. Um, and I think that a lot of the employers are very positive and actually, you know, we have good word of mouth as well.
2: Yeah, I definitely think people's perception of persons with disabilities is changing for the better. So. Let's hope well, that was
4: our slogan for a while. Was no, it? Your perception is our biggest disability.
2: Right. Uh, yeah. Well,
4: great. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: Well, you can't go just yet. we got to find out where people can go online to find out more information or oh. donate.
4: <laughs> okay. Well, anybody who wants to know more can go to www.develop.ca or sorry, ca, And we also have um, social media channels that you can get referred to from there. And if nobody's dropping by these days, but in the future, if you're ever in the neighborhood in Richmond, we'd really be happy to see you if you wanted to just drop by.
1: Wonderful. Well, Hey, listen, thanks for taking some time out of your day to talk to us and, uh, and best of luck in the future.
4: Thank you. Same to you guys.
1: Man, I can't get over how big that organization is. I had no idea, like 500
2: employees.
3: Wow. Yeah, I had no idea they were that big either. That's astounding.
2: And they have some assistive te- assistive technology trainers that we need to reach out to and yeah. see if we can do anything with them. I suppose. Or for them, or yeah.
1: Uh, but you know, is this the whole housing situation, like especially here in Vancouver? It's just, it, yeah. It's so frustrating. Um, I can just imagine how how difficult um you know the the housing situation is for for the organization.
2: Yeah, it's gotta oh. be so I, I don't know enough about these sort of topics. I have opinions that are aren't based on anything intelligible, but you know, when you hear the government saying they're gonna spend 16 billion dollars on this pipeline that the Liberals approved and we got people living in tents and parks, we have a problem. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Hey, Ryan. Rob. Uh, Where can people find us? They can find us online at
1: atbanter.com. They can also drop us an email if they so desire, especially if you've ever heard the word scut before. I would like to hear from you. Uh, (laughs) Howbell at atbanter.com.
3: And if you really want to converse about SCUT with a lot of other people, you can do it on social media and join us at Facebook or Twitter. Uh, All
1: right, everybody, that is going to do about do it for us. Big thanks to Alana Hendren for joining us. Big thanks to you for listening, and we will see everybody next
3: week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com, that's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com, or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com.